I'm Margaret Preston, president of Power of Parkinson's, and today, in conjunction with our POP Profile Series, we have Dr. Bennett Shaw, um, Associate Professor at the University of Virginia, the Division Head of the Parkinson's and Movement Disorders Division, and the Neurology Clerkship Director also at the University of Virginia. Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Margaret. Yeah, yeah, we're excited. I know you've got a lot of great content you want to share that our, our listeners will really value, so let's get right to it. Sounds so, good. Dr. Bennett, um, Dr. Shaw, tell me uh, a little bit about, and our listeners, spend a few minutes, walk us through how you got into a career of neurology, neurosurgery. Yeah, I, you know, I think everyone's journey is similar, though there are many, many um, different particular uh, uh, sort of inspirations and other things like that. You know, for me, um, you know, my decision to go into medicine overall was sort of with this thought that I would be somebody who built relationships with people, uh, get to know patients, get you know have them get to know me, um, and really sort of forge a, a partnership for for you know years potentially. Uh, and so as I went through medical school, you know I, I sort of was between um, internal medicine uh, and neurology, and neurology really uh, kind of is a, a medicine specialty. So. I, I ultimately did a neurology rotation and found that, that that patient interaction, especially in the clinic setting, but even to some degree in the inpatient setting is kind of what I saw myself uh, being as a physician even before my medical career started. And, and it's, really, it's really been a, um, a, a journey where that's been sort of corroborated and, and supported where I've gotten to know a lot of really meaningful people. And I would presume if I can elaborate on that a little bit with the type of disease that you're working with, you have a long relationship with a lot of your patients where that relationship um, approach is just so important to, uh, to their navigating their diagnosis and ultimately their care. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that goes along with going into movement disorders mm -hmm. neurology, where, yeah. where those relationships really are, are long lasting and, mm -hmm. and sort of the deeper, the better. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, I'd like to ask you a question. I asked many of our interviewees um, around how you stay optimistic and enthusiastic while you work in the space that um, a lot of the disease have an inevitable decline uh, associated with them. So how do you remain optimistic and, and positive about the outlook um, within neurology? You know, it can be a challenge at times, but I think the key is sort of focusing on positives. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, pop other, other sort of entities do that really well, which is focusing on abilities as opposed to disabilities, mm -hmm. you know, in, in sort of the, the rehab community, there's different ways of defining what disability is versus changes that can happen with life. You know, I tell a lot of patients, you know, Michael Jordan probably can't dunk anymore. Mm -hmm. And, and so we, we focus on the things that we enjoy doing the things that we can do safely. And, and to the extent that those are not limiting sort of function in a meaningful way mm -hmm. is really a, an opportunity more than anything else for people to get out, do more things, explore new things that they haven't before, or really get to the things that they've enjoyed that they may not have paid as much attention to in the recent past. Yeah, I think sometimes that change in perspective and whether it's a diagnosis that is the genesis of this is sometimes a good thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Definitely. Well, I'd like to jump into a series of questions regarding focused ultrasound. So at a high level, can you share with our listeners what is entailed in the procedure? Yeah. And, you know, I think a little bit of a background on it is that focused ultrasound, as it applies to treating Parkinson's and essential tremor currently, is in the category of sort of lesioning procedures. So those have been around for decades. But what focused ultrasound really provides is a means of, of delivering lesions or targeted lesions uh, in a way that doesn't involve making any incisions or drilling through the skull. Mm -hmm. So the, the way that that's done is that the head is unfortunately has to be shaved to avoid any sort of heat getting trapped but, you know, beneath, the, um, beneath the hair. So for people like me, that's not that big of a deal. Um, but for other people, rest assured, it grows back. Um, and then after that, there's sort of a, a frame with a bladder filled with water placed over the skull. And that water is sort of a means for the ultrasound energy to sort of go from the transducers to the skull and through the skull and so on. Mm -hmm. Sound waves don't tend to travel in air as well as they do through more dense material like water, for example. Mm -hmm. And so attached to that bladder are these transducers, 1,024 ultrasonic transducers. And it's sort of like a sort of a hemicircumferential helmet where the transducers are oriented all around up to the top. Uh, and using those, uh, our neurosurgical colleagues can sort of use certain coordinate targeting, both via an individual's um, imaging prior to the procedure, as well as based on sort of where a certain target should be anatomically uh, and start the energy focusing uh, in an MRI scan during the procedure. Okay. So as a follow-up to that question, share with our listeners who might be eligible for the focus ultrasound procedure. Yeah, and I think that's important. And I will make a note there, Margaret, because I think a lot of people with Parkinson's will ask, oh, am I eligible for this particular treatment mm -hmm. or procedure? And, and I like to sort of reframe how that's, that question is sort of asked because it's really more of a question of, does this procedure have much to offer me? Mm -hmm. um, and, and if it doesn't, then it's not necessarily a worthwhile thing. And so we, we, try to, we try to align what our expectations and goals are with the treatments we have, whether that's medication, whether that's a procedure, whether that's um, you know, other things like physical therapy, et cetera. So, you know, a lot of what ultrasound can offer is related to what the targets are we use. The first target was a thalamic target or in the thalamus of the brain, something called the VIM, which really is used to suppress tremor. And so it was developed initially in, in people who had essential tremor and it was applied to Parkinson's based on a study that we did a few years ago now. And it's really just treating tremor. And so for people who have tremor that's really severe, can be interfering with their function or quality of life and may not respond well to medication, then, or, or the medication may cause side effects, then that's, a, that's certainly a, a, an option that we can use. Mm -hmm. What it doesn't do or what that previous target uh, doesn't do is treat any of the other features of Parkinson's, slowness, stiffness, um, that can manifest as decreased dexterity. So just Recently, in the last few weeks, we've had a second target that's been FDA approved uh, in the globus pallidus or pallidotomy 
with focused ultrasound. And that really is a target that has good evidence for lesioning procedures, again, going back decades with deep brain stimulation to not only help suppress tremor, but also to reduce stiffness and slowness of movement. And for people who take PD meds who have excessive movements as a consequence, dyskinesias, mm -hmm. it can really suppress those dyskinesias on the side of the body that's being treated. Okay. Well, share with our listeners the risks associated uh, with the procedure. You know, I, I think that's really important because we're talking about neurosurgical procedures. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that having something that doesn't involve an incision doesn't mean that it's not invasive. If we're talking about making a lesion in the brain, I think that has to be done with a lot of thought uh, and a lot of discussion. You know, when we first started sort of doing trials with this technology, we saw uh, some degree of imbalance happen in many, pe in many people. That imbalance usually lasted for a few hours, maybe a few days, and resolved in the vast majority of people. Now, those were people with essential tremor who didn't necessarily have issues with balance prior. And with Parkinson's, it's a, it's a different disease. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had to be very cognizant of that and careful as we sort of applied this treatment in Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. And what we found is as the technology has gotten better, people have really done well in terms of adverse effects. In the procedure, when there are sonications being delivered, um, and, and this is to stay, take a little bit of a step back, you know, it's not a one-time procedure of you go in, you have the procedure done and you come out, it's a little bit of a scaling effect. So the energy is dialed up in those transducers until we see an effect that might last only for a few seconds or a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And we can use that transient effect to identify, hey, are we in the right spot? Do we need to move things a few millimeters in one direction or another, both to maximize benefit, but also to minimize side effect. Mm -hmm. um, and so within the procedure, as that energy is scaled up, there can be some degree of scalp pain or headache. Mm -hmm. and, and that's usually pretty temporary during the sonications and it can be mitigated by things like IV Tylenol or other treatments during the procedure. Mm -hmm. After the procedure, um, some patients have noticed some abnormal sensation around the side of the mouth or the hand. Again, that's usually pretty transient lasting again for hours, days, maybe weeks at a time. It usually resolves. Um, the imbalance that we had seen in, in a little bit more frequency earlier is less prominent now. Um, but we do have to be careful about people who might be on the edge in terms of their balance of needing something to help them walk versus being wheelchair bound uh, and saying we might want to be careful about considering this type of treatment. That makes sense. Thank you for sharing that. Um, well, walk us through a typical Parkinson's progression with a tremor and how it might look or how it might differ for someone who has underwent or undergone uh, rather the focus ultrasound and how those two run parallel and the differences um, once someone undergoes the procedure. Yeah, and, and it is important to note some people with PD don't have much tremor, mm -hmm. uh, whereas some people have what we call a tremor dominant form, and that's kind of the, the dominant feature. Mm -hmm. And, and I think where the procedure, you know, and not just the focused ultrasound, but deep brain stimulation as well, where those procedures can sort of change a trajectory of, of management of diseases in what the main priority is and where, for example, medications have been used to try to control symptoms. Mm -hmm. So we've had a lot of patients who 
uh, have been on a large dose of medications to help control a tremor that can be quite severe. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, can develop dyskinesia, can develop fluctuation and have tremor control that may only be sufficient for 50, 60% of the day. And in the meanwhile, they may have dyskinesia or they may just feel sedated or have other adverse effects from medication. Mm -hmm. So the procedure can really sort of dial back the clock a little bit when it comes to medication mm -hmm. uh, treatment. That doesn't mean people can get off medication for their Parkinson's necessarily, but it can sort of reduce the burden. And, and if we talk about using tools, you know, using tools in different amounts at different levels to target different things is always better than trying to just use one single thing mm -hmm. and just keep escalating that. You kind of jumped into my next question was going to be related to what's the relationship between the procedure and medication. So let's say, I'm sure there's a lot of patients who are coming in or listening to this thinking, oh, I can get off of um, my levodopa um, or whatever I'm taking to manage my Parkinson's symptoms. So talk to me about the relationship and what you typically see if there's a typical, which we know it's a little bit of the snowflake effect, but what you see in terms of the relationship between the procedure and medication uh, usage. Yeah, and, and I think I think the key there, Margaret, is these aren't mutually exclusive things. Of course. It's not not to say, well, let's choose one or the other. Right. But you know, like like we've said, some people don't tolerate medication as well or can have adverse effects. Mm -hmm. And really trying to scale that back is helpful. But even people who tolerate medications, you know, uh, I, one thing that is inspiring to me and in taking care of so many people with Parkinson's is you know, they can take medications three, four times a day. And, you know, I have trouble remembering to take something once a day if I mm -hmm. have. To. So mm -hmm. um, that's a remarkable thing, but it's also burdensome. Yeah. And, and to the extent that, you know, people have to sort of set a lot of alarms and do a number of different things to sort of keep on a medication schedule, that's tough to begin with. But if the consequence of getting off the schedule is really being disabled, then the role of any surgical procedure is to really try to create a, a floor effect that if the medication wears off, for example, I'm not going to be as disabled as I would be yeah. otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not as locked to that sort of schedule yeah. and I can live my life more. And then, and then the second is, um, you know, for people where we're aligning the goals and what the surgical treatments can do and the ultrasound can do to what the priorities are, you know, it, it really can allow for medications to be scaled back significantly, mm -hmm. maybe not permanently, but at least for a window of time that, like I said, is almost akin to kind of setting the clock back a little mm -hmm. bit. I love how you describe that. And it's such a wonderful takeaway. I think of um, your last answer regarding it's such a combination of things um, that go into ultimately the success of the procedure um, and, and treatment and, and creating that floor, elevating the floor rather that your baseline is a little bit higher. So you're not so burdened by times and uh, medication alerts on your phone. So um, it, it frees up the individual a lot, which, which I think is fantastic um, how you articulated that. Um, to kind of tie a bow on Focus Ultrasound, if our listeners are interested in learning more about the procedure, where would you direct them to go? You know, I think there, there are sort of two resources. Uh, one is what's called the Focused Ultrasound Foundation, mm -hmm. which is kind of a not-for-profit entity that uh, really promotes the technology, not just for neurologic applications, but for other applications in, in, in healthcare. Um, 
and that's just fussfoundation.org. Mm -hmm. um, the other is sort of centers that that sort of provide the treatment. So at UVA, we have a very comprehensive website um, that goes through the University of Virginia's focused ultrasound center and kind of what the patient experience is, a couple of videos of, of the patient's journey, uh, which can always be helpful. Yeah, and we can, uh, for those listening, we can certainly provide all of those websites at the end of this presentation as well. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, you know, I would be remiss. I've run many of these pop profiles starting under COVID, and I don't think I've never said COVID <laughs> or had an interview that we've never mentioned COVID-19. So I'd be remiss not to say it. So um, Dr. Shaw, tell me what targeted advice you would give to people with Parkinson's under this climate um, who are still a little bit ha apprehensive, hesitant to get out there, start, restart um, their lives and exercise routine, et cetera. Yeah, and, and this is always a tough thing because uh, we, you know, everyone who's watching and, and you as well, Margaret, as well as me, we have different family members or, or other people we know who have different levels of comfort. Mm -hmm. um, I think the key is safety and trying to be as safe as possible, but also understanding that we have to balance that with what's healthy. And so, you know, we could say, well, if our goal is to not get uh, infected by a virus that can be really bad, that's great. But staying in, staying in the house for the rest of our lives is not really a viable option mm -hmm. for our overall health and well-being. Mm -hmm. So what safety entails is, you know, talking with people's doctors, making sure they understand um, the role of vaccination, getting vaccinated if they feel comfortable and, and have a chance to talk to their doctors about it, mm -hmm. um, getting, getting boosted as is the latest CDC sort of guidelines. Um, but then also just being cognizant of surroundings and saying, okay, well, if I'm going to be um, seeing family and maybe, you know, a child or grandchild who might be in daycare or some other setting where they might be at higher risk, making sure to either distance or wear a mask. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, for example, you know, gyms, um, exercise programs, I think staff uh, and, and facilities have made such great accommodations and, and have responded well to the pandemic that I, I can clearly see the difference in, in the people that I follow who are back to doing those things versus not. And the ones who are just, you know, getting back to having some semblance of normality and, and, and improved quality of life. Mm -hmm. And I would suspect that just a simple getting outdoors and walking um, is generally with low risk associated with it and gets people out and moving as well. Definitely, especially now that it's not like 100 degrees every day. You're right. You're right. And so far, it's been mild here in Virginia. So, um, well, Dr. Shaw, as we summarize, where can our listeners go to find find out more about you and the research you're conducting? Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, the University of Virginia, we have sort of a clinical trials website. And I think that's a good place to know kind of what uh, our group is up to in terms of our clinical research profile. Um and I think that applies to, to centers everywhere. So, you know, a lot of people with Parkinson's might think, well, I kind of live in the middle of nowhere. There's not really a university or a large hospital system near me, but there are resources that might be closer than they think. And I think mm -hmm. looking at, at even local community hospitals, there might be relationships with, um, with research entities. Of course, the Michael J. Fox Foundation, mm -hmm. POP, uh, and the, um, the clinicaltrials.gov entity is really a comprehensive uh, place to look at, at research trials and, and to find out what's going on. Okay. 
Well, we will certainly, as I said before, we will put those um, at the conclusion of this presentation as well for folks to access. Um, well, that does it for me, Dr. Shaw. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of the POP Profile series. Thanks for having me, Margaret. Yeah, thanks.